everyone, welcome back to I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Today we've got an awesome guest, Clint Haycock. So Clint has the Mind Shift podcast, who Troy and I have both listened to for a while. We've been trying to tee up this chat for, for quite a while and get our schedules together. Um, we started talking to Clint a while ago and then things dropped off. We got really busy and we've come back. So it's exciting to actually get Clint on the show today. Now, Clint is a an American who moved to the UK, so he lives in, in North Wales in, in the UK. But he's got a great story, which we really want to chat about today. He served in ministry and in lecturing, in Bible stuff, you know, all that stuff that our good listeners love to talk about for 20 years. He's got a PhD. He's a doctor. I was just going to say, he's a doctor, Clint Haycock. Now, we may not talk too much about your PhD Except I do want to, to name that your doctrinal thesis was in the area of biblical studies and it was a rhetorical critical study of the book of Ezekiel. Now, that's not something you hear every day, uh, that's for sure. And, and, Ezekiel, and your favourite verse, Brian, is in Ezekiel, Ezekiel 2320. Um, and I'm sure, Clint, that you would know this about the um, the appendage of a donkey and the omission of a horse. <laughs> yeah. um, I used to I used to prophesy over people and, and give them that word. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I can't even imagine what the response must have been to that. Oh, it's great. They always thought they were going to have a big cock. So, no, <laughs> well, that's <laughs> a literal prophecy. That's it right there. <laughs> it is. That's it. We, we we did actually talk last week about do you remember scripture keys? Scripture keys. Oh, you might not have come across them, but they're essentially no. this book. It was an indexed book where you could go. I've got an issue with masturbation or bedwetting or whatever, and there would be an appropriate verse which you would pray over it and claim it. And we spoke about bedwetting last week, and it was all these psalms which was talking about the, the waters not coming forth and all that sort of stuff, and that would apparently stop bedwetting. Wow. Oh, yeah, Because yeah. it was a sword of the spirit, which is the word, right? So that's what ah, it was. Right. Speak, out, speak out verses. It's very charismatic. Pentecostal kind of thing, but I think it was based off there was there's a new age version of it called Heal You, you Can Heal Your Life, and people would you know make these confessions and and say things out loud. And I don't know which came first, whether it was the new agey one or the Christian one, but I think it was definitely a Christian version of that. Anyway, there's been a lot of crossover. It's all about trying to apply the Bible to your life in practical ways. That's really the heart of what you're talking about, isn't it? Whether it's charismatic or more fundamentalist. The problem that I always encountered in when I was a pastor was that same issue. How do you help people apply the Bible in air quotes to their lives in specific measurable ways? And that's one of them. Counseling is another one, isn't it? Biblical counseling, Christian counseling. You give people Bible verses and that's supposed to heal their mental health problems. So they, they, this is an issue within Christianity for sure. Hold on a minute. Are you saying that the Bible doesn't heal mental health issues? <laughs> Shocking as it may seem, yeah, it's well. The, the the way I was taught in Bible college and in introduction to counseling, which was a Christian counseling based program, that was the way it was laid out. Was you would uncover your childhood traumas, and then using Bible verses, the Holy Spirit would just heal you of your mental health issues. And so that was at a mainstream, you know, evangelical Bible college. So that's very widespread within Christianity, I think. So what uh, Bible college did you go to? I went to Multnomah Bible College in Portland, Oregon, and then I went to Western Seminary. I did two master's degrees at Western 
And then I came over here to the UK, as you said, I did a PhD at the University of Chester, which is up in the northwest of the country near Liverpool, sort of up in that area. So would you consider yourself to tick the box of a teenage fundamentalist? Did you grow up in the scene? Tell us about a bit about your backstory. Very much so. Yes, I was raised in a fundamentalist Church of Christ in the Seattle, Washington area, so up in the northwest of the United States. And the problem that I had, I guess, looking back on it now, was that I wanted it so badly to work. You know, I was I cared so much about it because I felt like I was always failing God. One of the things they taught was that was a doctrine called baptismal regeneration, which means that you have to be baptized in order to be considered saved. That's a particular doctrine within the Church of Christ denomination. So I ended up getting baptized three times because I kept failing and failing and failing. And when I would go to the pastor and say, you know, I'm not, I'm struggling as a Christian, as a young person, 13, 14, 15 years old, the new pastor told me, well, the first baptism must not have taken. Let's get you baptized again. And then it happened again. So I was baptized three times. So yes, I was a teenage fundamentalist. I desperately wanted to make it work. And I couldn't understand why kid, you know, getting rebaptized wasn't making it work. I don't want to downplay your three baptisms for a moment, but I was baptized three times as well. I was baptized once as a um, Church of England Anglican baby. I was baptized once when I joined the Revival Centers, which was this Pentecostal group that I was in. And then later when I realized that they were a little bit cultic, I thought, oh, I better safely get baptized again. So yeah, three yep. times. Three times. That's the logic, isn't it? And I, I talked to someone the other day that was baptized. He said, I beat you. I've got four. And that's the whole thing, isn't it? The, the aspect of fundamentalism that's so problematic is that if it doesn't work, the problem's got to be on your side, on your end. So therefore, I was racking my brains. I'm failing as a Christian. Why isn't God helping me more? The answer was the formula wasn't correct. And so you had to redo it again according to the correct formula. And even the second time didn't work. So then the third time I figured must finally work. You know, so it, it really messes with your brain. And I think a lot of it does lead to religious trauma syndrome, which was certainly something I experienced as a kid because of things like that. I, and I do think that there's a challenge out there to our listeners. Anyone who's been baptized more than four times, call in on one jesus that's right. Reach out to us. We want to hear your baptism stories. If anyone can beat three, so if Troy and I have been, done, have been baptized three times, and I know someone who's been done four, there must be someone who's been five, six, seven times. Surely someone is more saved than both of you put together. <laughs> more sanctified than us. Praise the Lord. <laughs> it's true. It's got to be true. It's got to be true. So what led you then to, you, you know, you grow up, as a bit of a, a fundy, you get baptized three times. So you, you know, you're really committed to the cause. And then you've chosen an academic path as well as a, a pastoral path. What led you to be become a pastor or to want to pursue that? Well, as I see it now, it was because I wanted to help people avoid the pitfalls that I experienced growing up. And I, I am a teacher. I'm that's how I'm wired. I love teaching. Even though now I teach at a college, I teach construction skills to military veterans, it has nothing whatever to do with religion or pastoring or anything, I still get a kick out of teaching. I love it. It ticks so many boxes for me. 
And I see now that I think what I was doing was I was going to think, okay, I will, I'll learn the Bible. I'll learn theology so in depth that I'll be able to help people avoid those same issues and problems that I had as a, as a kid and as a teenage fundamentalist growing up. So that's what led me down that pastoral slash academic route. So tell us a bit a bit about your time as a, a pastor. What sort of pastor were you? Were you a pastor of a church? Were you a teacher pastor? What what was your role and how, how did that play out for you? How it played out was I started out, I was in Bible college. I'd been a youth pastor at another church for about two years. I burned out there and I left that church. We found another church. The The lady I was married to at the time, we've since divorced a few years ago, but we went off to another church that a lot of the Bible college students were going to at Multnomah. And I ended up, because I'm a drummer, so I ended up playing on the worship team just as the drummer. I was just a drummer in the band. That's all I wanted to do. Uh, I was just, I was happy to play in the in the worship team. But then they found out, wait a minute, you're going to Bible college. Then I went on to seminary. They found out that I could teach. They found out that I knew the Bible. I knew theology. So I would teach occasional adult classes and we led a home Bible study group on a Wednesday night, the typical story. And eventually, I became an elder there. Then I eventually became the head pastor over the course of a few years. So it was a long sort of journey. I never set out to be the head pastor, but that's just kind of the way things went. People left, and I stepped up and, and took on greater responsibilities. So I ended up being there for about 12 years. And at the end, the church actually, we closed the church down. It was heading to a nasty church split. So we closed the church down, and off the back of that, I then we moved to the UK for me to pursue doctoral studies, and I was completely burned out. I didn't want to have anything to do with the church, and you know that's kind of a whole separate story. But that was kind of my journey through pastoral ministry. So it doesn't sound like it was really a great, healthy. Journey. It wasn't. No, and and you know this all too often happens, doesn't it? That you know no one else steps up, and you see this not just in the church. So you know, let's not just point fingers at the church, but um, in leadership roles, in roles of um, responsibility, some people don't want to step up. So some people with really good intent, like yourself, step into it, and then they they get burnt out and they they get damaged by it. Do you think that because a lot of people will will hear this who are still Christians or, or still holding on to faith or, or people who are just going, oh, well, this guy, of course he's going to turn away from Christianity. He was burnt by the church. He was burnt by his experience. What would you say to that? Was it was it about that or was there something deeper for you? It was a twofold thing. And this is something I learned from my good friend, David Hayward. He's the naked pastor. You may have had him on your show, but he's a wonderful friend of mine, lives in Canada. But he says that your deconstruction journey oftentimes is like the twin rails of a train track. On the one side, you have your relationship with the church. And on the other side, you have your sort of relationship with God and the Bible and theology and doctrine. No matter which sort of one you go down, and everyone has problems with one or the other, eventually, when you pursue that line, it'll lead you into conflict with the other side. So if you have problems with the church, let's say you've been abused by the leadership or you've been you know, hurt by Christians or whatever happens, eventually that'll get you to start questioning, well, why is God allowing this? How is that right? How is that a possibility? I thought this was all about love and you know, that'll lead you into conflict with your belief system. If you start, on the other hand, questioning your beliefs about the Bible or God or doctrine, that will inevitably bring you into conflict with 
the church. So I was doing both because I was reading progressive Christians like Brian McLaren and Donald Miller and Rob Bell at the same time that a lot of the conflict was going on with the church. And so it, it was a twofold thing that brought me into conflict because I was bringing some of that stuff into my sermons and things. And that was bringing me into conflict with the leadership of the church. So I would say for people, if they're on that journey, they have to kind of look back and say, well, which line am I on? Because it's going to lead you into conflict somewhere down the line. So tell us then, Clint, about your journey. Tell us about how you came to a point where you started to say, I don't know if I want to be a Christian anymore, or or, or, or even even before that, things that started to challenge you, whether they be you know that that track of church experience or whether it be that track of religious experience. Well, like I say, it was a twofold thing because at the same time I was reading progressive Christians, I was jettisoning a lot of the fundamentalism, that teenage fundamentalism that you talked about earlier. I was getting rid of a lot of the sort of core beliefs that I thought I had to cling on to. So the progressive Christian phase probably lasted about five or six years. And I look back on it now and I think that was a hugely important part of my journey because it gave me the permission. It gave me the freedom to question my received theology and my doctrinal background and my views of the Bible. But like I say, as I was bringing those things in, I was bringing stuff into the sermons that I was preaching and talking about things with the leadership of the church, the elder team, they were freaking out. <laughs> you know, they were like, what, what, you're, you're going liberal. You're, you've lost your edge. You've lost the plot. You know, so that was leading me into a lot of conflict and people were leaving the church because of it and things like that. You know, so I think it's, it's a very helpful phase that people go and some people stay there. I'm, I have nothing against that. I could have stayed there, but eventually I got to the point where I felt like I jettisoned so much that I looked around and said, actually, there's really nothing left. You know, all the puzzle pieces had gone and there was nothing left that I could retain and still say, I am a Christian. And for me, the last straw came with the 2016 evangelical support for Donald Trump. As I saw the run up to that in 2015, 2016, and I saw that they had, I, in my view, had sold out for Christian nationalism and all that. And I said, okay, that is a conscious decision. I do not want to be identified with Christianity because of that. That was the final straw for me. Uh, but it, it would take me years and years to get there. Which is which is a very common theme. And it, but that's that's pretty recent. It's six yeah. years ago that, that before you you came to that decision of going. Actually, I don't want to identify or be associated with Christianity. So that's you know that's that's pretty recent. So that's a, that's a long run up for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, many many years. A lot of stuff happened because when I came over here to the UK, I had a really good supervisor for my doctoral dissertation. He was actually he had joint Canadian American citizenship, but he lived in this country for a long time. And he would get me to question things that I would write in my various chapters that I was producing on Ezekiel, on preaching, and things I would say, he would circle in red. <laughs> and we'd meet together for my month monthly meetings, and he would say, look what you said in this sentence or paragraph. Do you really believe that? And I, I would read it and go, wow, that's a really dogmatic statement. Where's that coming from? And I realized it was just my inbuilt teachings that I'd received for decades as a kid and growing up and being a pastor, 
And I'm I, I'm like looking at these statements I was making and going, good God, I'm not sure I believe that. So I was deconstructing, you know, even then as part of my pastor or my doctoral th- thesis. And then I was also teaching at a Bible college up here in, in Leeds and Liverpool. <laughs> and that got me into a lot of trouble because I was I was making the students question things about the Bible and theology. And that, you know, they would go to the head of the school and say, who is this guy? He's getting us to question the Bible. You know, we can't have that, you know. And I'm thinking, but that's, we don't have the freedom to question. What are we doing here? And it caused a firestorm. So in the end, I taught for about eight years and they made me redundant, which is, you know, in the States, they laid off. Basically, they ran out of money and and made me redundant. And now I think that was the best thing that could have ever happened to me because I was increasingly questioning everything and leading, it was leading me to more and more conflict. So how much of your deconstruction do you think you owe to your study? Like how, how much did you study your way out of, out of Christianity? Yeah, a lot of it. Like you say, the book of Ezekiel is a hugely problematic book. And it's the reason I picked Ezekiel in the first place, because I thought nobody writes on Ezekiel. Nobody does anything on Ezekiel other than these super obscure biblical theologians and biblical study you know, specialists and everything. And I tried to link it into preaching. I thought nobody's done this. And I don't think anyone ever has, or it had before me. And I thought I'd get a job off the back of being able to show all this amazing stuff that I did in Ezekiel and then linking it into preaching. But even going through the book of Ezekiel, it presents this vision of God that is unbelievably cruel, vengeful, angry. At one point, he according to the narrative anyway, he kills Ezekiel's wife. And he says to Ezekiel, I'm going to kill your wife and you will not be allowed to mourn for her. As a a case study, as an example to your fellow Israelites here in Babylon in exile, and he's not allowed to grieve for his wife. Now, what kind of a God is that? That's insane. It's insanity, isn't it? It's crazy. I'm going to kill your wife tonight and you will not be allowed to mourn for her to prove to your fellow Israelites that, you know, this is the, the example that you're setting. And I'm, I'm looking at this vision of God in the book of Ezekiel and going, I can't serve a God like that. What the hell? You know, if that's the way God is, that's, that's not the God that I want to worship on a Sunday in church. And all these people are worshiping this God that commanded genocide in the Old Testament, all sorts of horrific laws in the Old Testament. <laughs> What about all of that? So that led me into huge, you know, deconstruction problems. And, and you know, you, you do hear a lot of people that are holding on to their Christian faith or, you know, fervently believe it and, and that's okay. We'll, we'll come in and say, yeah, but then there's Jesus. So, yeah, we're looking at a, a vengeful God in the Old Testament, but then but then Jesus came and now grace covers us all, we're in the blood, um, all that sort of stuff. What What's your response to that? Well, there's a lot of layers there because on the first level, we can't trust that the sayings of Jesus as recorded in the Gospels are accurate historically. They're, they're, so that's one whole thing that we we may or may not want to get into. So there's a textual problem. So you can't just say, Jesus says X, Y, Z, and literally accept that as gospel truth, pardon the pun, because you can't trust the gospel records as historically verifiable, factually accurate, and all the rest of it. And we don't even know if Jesus actually existed 
which is a whole nother de deal, you know? So there's a lot of problems. There's conflicts between Mar Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John's a completely different gospel. You know, so on that level, to just say, Jesus is my hero, he's my sort of guru, forget about the Old Testament, there's huge problems with that issue right there, just on the face of it. You know, so that really, that argument falls down quite quickly when, when you start to drill down into the gospel records. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously it was a bit of a loaded question that I threw at you because, um, you know, and, and I think it's definitely a place where both Troy and I over time came to a note. Look, I've, I've had someone who's been communicating with me recently and telling me essentially that I'm going to hell um, and that I'm not seeing, I'm seeing God through the lens of my experience, not the God of the Bible. And look, I haven't even bothered getting into a debate with that of going, okay, here's your God of the Bible, like you've you've just explained. So yeah, let's look at this God. <laughs> There's huge problems. There's a real cognitive dissonance with people, isn't there? There's yeah. there's their ability to go. I'm going to keep pushing forward with the faith. Let's let's not worry about this evidence stuff. And and it's very much. I think trying to, like you said before, when you were a teenager, you wanted it to work. You needed it to work. You kept getting rebaptized. You keep tr kept trying to reconvince yourself over and over and over. But there does come a time, and Troy um, describes it like a, a tooth decay. You know, it's you, you tap it and it all disintegrates. I've, I've described mine as a. Um, you know, house of cards. I, I did very similar. I kept pulling bits away and going, ah, oh, literal resurrection, nah. You know, oh, virgin birth, nah, nah, nah. And and bits and pieces. And then all of a sudden, you're left with this guy hanging out in Seven Eleven in New Mexico called Jesus. That's about as close as you've got to Jesus left in your life. And you realise that you've been hanging on to stuff because it was your safety net. It is. And I I was thinking when you were saying about the issues of the gospel we were talking about, I did a podcast with a good friend of mine, Dr. David Madison, and he wrote a book called 10 Things That Christians Wish Jesus Hadn't Said or something like that. And we drilled down into those 10 statements or sayings of Jesus, and they're basically utterly in, inapplicable. You can't apply them. And so what he does, he basically, those Christians like you articulated saying, I just want to embrace Jesus and that's my Christianity. What about some of these real problem sayings and, and teachings of Jesus? How do you apply that? You know, if your hand offends you, cut it off. And if your eye offends you, gouge it out. And if you take that literally, you've got huge problems. You, you can't cut your hand off and gouge your eye out. So you have to explain it away and interpret it away. And there's a whole hermeneutical issue around all those sayings of Jesus that are like that. You know, so it just doesn't work when you really push a person. How do you apply the sayings of Jesus 100% across the board? It can't be done. So it really doesn't work in the long run. I think what a lot of people do is that they will, you know, rely on the fact that there are apologists out there, you know, who've written a book called, you know, How to Explain the Bible Contradictions or Harmonizing the Bible. And let's face it, a lot of people haven't even read them. Right. Exactly. But then you get the people that have read them and they've read Who Rolled the Stone and Mere Christianity and these other things as well. And they, you know, they they have read those. And sometimes the the arguments from those books will will satiate 
those doubts. But other times I think people think, well, there are experts out there and they understand and, and maybe I haven't read them or maybe I haven't heard, but it does exist. And there are explanations for everything and let's just let's just put it away. And and I, I think to a point I did that. As as a younger Christian, I think it's not it's not that I just assumed, I just hadn't got to it yet. And I'd seen the books. So I figured everything was reconcilable. But obviously as as you start to study, as you start to look, and especially at your level going into a PhD level, et cetera, you're going to look at that and start to go, actually, that doesn't stack up and, and that, doesn't, that doesn't hold water. The one for me was about Jesus claiming some standing here will not taste death until they see the kingdom. When I, when I put that out to people in ministry, I put that out to people online, I put that out to theologians, I said, give me an explanation for this. And there was no one could come back and explain that to me. And if it was from the Book of Mormon, we would have laughed them out of town, you know, back as, a, as an evangelical. And for me, that was the straw that broke the camel's back. That was the last one where I went, okay, this doesn't add up. I don't believe anymore. And, and I said it out loud and, you know, somewhere in heaven, my name was struck off a list or whatever. But, but truly it was, it was that. But that wasn't, it wasn't like someone came to me one day and said, what about that verse? It was, built up over time there was exactly. this and that and this and that and this and that and then finally this one was like well as i said if this was the book of mormon i would be laughing at you but this is the bible yeah it's the deal breaker and that's the problem isn't it the implications are all or nothing as you said it's the house of cards brian every it's it's too it's too much is at stake if the bible is inspired and inerrant and infallible it's without mistake, it's without error, then you've got a huge problem. If there is a contradiction to be found or a teaching that can't be explained or something like that, the whole edifice crumbles because it's literally all or nothing. It is all or nothing, isn't it? Because the Bible cannot be without error because God himself is a truth-telling God. He cannot lie. Therefore, the Bible, you know, and it just goes from there and, and goes on and on. And the stakes are just too high. It's too emotionally threatening for a Christian to say, wow, if the Bible is incorrect. I remember I did a, a thing in my class in Leeds. I had all students from Africa. They were very fundamentalist, but also very weirdly charismatic at the same time. And I did a session on questioning how much of the Bible is inspired or is God breathed and how much of it is human produced? Is it 100% zero or 50-50? And we went through this whole discussion and I said, but if it's 100% God and 0% human, then is it dictation? Well, no, no. You know, he, you can see the personalities of the writers coming through. So it can't be 100% zero. So is it 50-50? We went through the different scenarios and they were really disturbed by that because in the end I said, no matter which percentage you pick, if there's a mistake, whose fault is it? It can't be God's fault. It must be the human's fault. And they were, that was one of when the lady went to the head of the school and said, this guy's not even a Christian because he's making us question the Bible. You can't do that. So they were so emotionally threatened by this discussion that we had. Yeah, don't you know the rules? You've got to pick your favorite gospel and stick with it. Because if you use another one of the gospels, it might contradict the other. So exactly. <laughs> forget about the different recollections of what Jesus did and how he did it, of course. Exactly. Well, there's another thing that got me in trouble, and I've shared this story before. I had the class do an activity whereby we took Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and we I had them compare three parallel passages all relating the same event about something Jesus did. And I had them list all the similarities and all the differences between the three passages. And it was shocking 
how different they really were. When we actually drilled down into it, they spent a whole hour doing this. And then at the end, I said, what, what accounts for this? There's such radical, and they, they'd never done this before. They'd never looked at it in such in depth before. And they were shocked. They couldn't, like you were saying, uh, Troy, they could not explain it. How do you explain these glaring contradictions between the, the three Gospels? And they couldn't do it. Because in these three accounts, Jesus gives completely different commands to his disciples, tells them to do different things. Some things are left out. Some things are included. There's no explanation for why they're so different and contradictory. And you can't hold to inspiration and inerrancy if if there's such glaring contradictions. And it's very hard to hold a, a picture of Jesus as deity unless you're immersing yourself in the book of John. It's funny, Brian, listening to you saying, hold on to one of the Gospels. I can remember the guy that was discipling me in the Assemblies of God. He was all about, oh, the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John. And, of course, that's the one that, that that's the, uh, I've heard it called the Gospel of the Church. It's it's not in any way sort of a historical Gospel. It's full of doctrine and belief and, you know, this deity of Christ, this, you know, this God, man, etc. You know, you just don't see that in the book of Mark. It's just not there. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And that's the problem, isn't it? That the book of John is the favorite book. I used to argue with Jehovah's Witnesses over first, you know, John 1, 1 and John 1, 1 in the New World Translation. In the beginning, the word was a God. The word was God. Oh, man. But if Jesus is, in fact, fully human and fully God, again, the implications are so high the stakes are so high because you go down paul's route you know jesus was the god man he died on the cross to, to satisfy the wrath of god for the sins of humanity that is the essence of christianity he rose from the dead to prove that he had the power over sin and death you know if all that starts to unravel you, you're literally left with nothing you've got nothing so you can't question the deity of Christ for sure. You can't even question the virgin birth of Christ because he had to have been born of a virgin to preserve his deity. And, you know, it's all wrapped up in this package, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, one one book that Troy lent me, which Troy, I must give back, um, is Bart Ehrman's How Jesus Became God. And you you talk about, I mean, it, a lot of that for me was, was probably stuff I hadn't thought too much about and some of those you know ancient ancient texts that really mirror the story of Jesus but a thousand years before he came um so you whoops. know and, yeah <laughs> oops uh, and but, but Christians look at that and they go oh, well that's just not true it, it's made up like that that never happened there was no stories or whatever that yeah, i'm sorry Egyptian. Wrong. yeah no forget that forget that so it's really interesting you just you just shut everything off but for you you started to unravel what how did your unraveling happen where did where did it get you to you've you we were starting to talk before we pressed record on this and you were saying sort of where you've got to in terms of identifying yourself you know some people identified they've landed as a progressive or an agnostic or an atheist um i'll let you tell the story of where you've landed but um how did it start unraveling for you like you said in 2016 was a point where you went fuck you this Christian nationalist stuff, I, that, that's not for me, um, Christianity, I de-identify. There was stuff that happened before that, I'm sure. Tell us about it. It was a long journey of desperately trying to retain any and everything that I could to stay a Christian. So uh, as I see it now, it's more of a spectrum 
And I just did a presentation a couple of weeks ago for my good friend, Dr. Terry Daniels. She did a conference in Portland, Oregon, in the States called the Conference on Death, Grief, and Belief. They had some fantastic speakers, Seth Andrews and some other people were there. And I did a presentation on uh, an article that I'd written years ago called What Happens After People Leave the Church. And I discovered through doing a lot of research and talking to literally thousands of ex-evangelicals that there is not a one-size-fits-all approach. What happens is people tend to move along a sort of a spectrum. There's no right or wrong position. People end up at a place that they may stay there for a year or two or three or five and then move along down the spectrum. And that's what I did. I went down the progressive Christian route. I was desperately trying to stay a Christian, jettisoned a lot of my fundamentalist beliefs. Then I tried for years to sort of save the church. I went down the Rob Bell route. I went down the you know, the route of trying to get the church to listen and, and open up a bigger table sort of dialogue, the John Pavlovich thing, all that kind of stuff. But nobody was listening. And so I kept moving down, you know, the spectrum and ended up kind of at, at, I guess, an agnostic position. I have a lot of problems with the God of the Bible and I've got a lot of questions. I'm not sure if I would say I'm an absolute atheist, but I'm I'm in transition. I'm still in the journey, I guess I would say. So I think that's an encouraging thing for people. When they read my article, they go, ah, when I, I started out as a number three, then I moved to number seven, then I moved to number 12. That places me in a journey. That puts me in a context. And that's a helpful sort of model or tool for people to use that are deconstructing. You know, it, it kind of puts them on this spectrum, this journey. And I'm guessing that people can oscillate, you know, they can, they can be a three, be a seven, then, you know, be a four, then be a nine, come back to a, a six. I mean, people don't necessarily have to go in a linear one direction, do they? No. And it's, and I, I'm really careful to say this, this spectrum that I'm presenting, the, the reason I call it a spectrum, it's not one that I made up. I interviewed, well, I didn't interview, I put a, a lot of posts on this ex-evangelical um, social media group that I was part of that probably had four to 5,000 ex-evangelicals. And I would pose the question, I just open it up, say, what did you do after you left the church? What, where did you go? And I wasn't forcing it on anyone. They were responding to me. And I was starting to categorize the different responses. And I began to realize it was kind of a spectrum, but it's not any kind of value judgment. As you say, people can move back and forth and, and change. And, and, you know, we have that freedom and I found, too, that staying in that sort of angry position is very unhealthy in the long term. I was there for a long time. I was at that position. I was so pissed off at the church. I was angry at God. And I discovered, though, that it's very unhealthy for your own mental health. It's not a good place to stay. You need, And that's when I, I really shifted my podcast and I changed the title of it to Reconstruction After Deconstruction. I realized that when I started studying cult psychology that you need to rebuild your identity after you leave the religion. That is hugely, hugely important. That's the journey I'm on. I'm reconstructing the life that I left behind. This is my authentic self. That's actually who I am now. And I'm, I'm on that journey. So whatever point I'm on the spectrum, that's it. That's it. That's where I'm at. And I'm moving down that road. But what about that um, Jesus-shaped hole in your heart, Clint? How would that be filled? <laughs> the God-shaped hole. It hasn't been filled. I don't know what to do. <laughs> Maybe you guys can, can help me out. No, it's funny because I've been I've filled it with my own sort of 
um, you know, agency. That's the word. This is a word I've, I've come to sort of hold on to lately. I've been going through uh, Vanderkolk's book, The Body Keeps the Score. And he said, it's all about trauma. I don't know if you guys have read it, but it's, it's one of the best books on trauma. And I'm pouring my religious trauma into that. And he talks about the importance of agency. We need to have, as humans, a sense that we can control our own destiny, our own choices, our lives. And we have to deal with the consequences of those choices. But that's okay as long as you admit that and are ready to deal with that. And that's the journey I'm on. The God-shaped hole has been filled with my own agency. And I don't pray. I don't read the Bible. I don't ask God for advice. I have to deal with my own choices, but I'm prepared to accept that because I am in charge of my own life and destiny. Clint, let me take it back a little bit and ask you, what were those big moments for you, whether they were experiential in church, whether it was something, you know, you're on a mountaintop, whether it was a theological moment, what were some of those big points in your deconstruction that you went, okay, you know, like I've talked about for me, it was the, you know, Jesus, some standing here will not taste death. I mean, that was a huge moment for me. And, and it may not be your last moment, but tell us some of those big ones that really stood out to you where you said, this doesn't make sense. This doesn't add up. Sure. I can remember when I was in Bible college, I was teaching inductive Bible study methods. Uh, so we were going through the books of Jonah, the book of Ephesians. I was teaching my fellow students how to interpret the Bible and all these hermeneutical things. And I was really struggling with, I didn't believe it myself, but I was teaching it. And I remember going to one of my mentors and saying, look, I'm I'm really having a hard time here. I don't think I believe what I'm the message I'm selling. And yet I'm teaching it to these, you know, there are a couple of years below me, but these are the students that I'm I'm teaching. And he talked me down and he gave me all these Bible verses to explain it all away. Now, though, I look back on those kinds of experience from the point of view I don't know if you've read Marlene Winnell's book, Leaving the Fold, but it's one of the best books I would recommend for people who have left fundamentalist religion behind. And she said something that just absolutely hit me like a ton of bricks. She said, whenever you have those doubts and questions, when you're in the religion, what's actually happening is that is your authentic self raising objections and saying, wait a minute, this doesn't add up. That's your authentic self. And you cover it up with the veneer of the religious self and you go on and you move on, but it's actually doing damage to your authentic self. It does do damage when you sort of, it's the cognitive dissonance. You come up with a way to, to soothe it and to make it go away, but it doesn't really go away. And now I see that's what I was doing. My real self was saying, this is bullshit. I don't get this. This is crazy. Um, and I, I talked myself down off the cliff, you know, so I see it now as the deconstruction part it's it's that's your authentic self trying to reassert itself. And the journey I'm on is trying to rebuild the authentic self, my original actual self, aside from the religious self. So the deconstruction, I think, is a lot of ways it's our authentic self trying to assert itself and raising those doubts and questions and concerns. And when the mental shelf gets so full of stuff on there that it collapses, that's when a lot of people walk away. And it could be different, you know, for every person, but that's usually what happens for a lot of people, I think. So what were some of those things on the shelf, Clint? What what were some of the things that started to started to build up for you? So many questions. I mean, we were talking about apologetics. I mean, I was big into apologetics. I used to listen to the Bible Answer Man, Dr. Walter Martin. I read Josh McDowell. I read all those books. I would defend the faith. And now I see that it was all 
trying to answer my own questions and my own doubts about the Bible, about inerrancy, about in, inspiration and infallibility of Scripture, those those Bible verses you talked about that didn't add up and you couldn't explain away the contradictions in the Bible and the genocide in the Old Testament, and those kind of things were points along the journey where they would be put on the mental shelf. They didn't get an answer, but they'd, I'd be sticking them on the mental shelf. And eventually it collapsed, <laughs> you know, and I just couldn't do it anymore. And so why, why did you then continue on? Why couldn't you stay in a progressive Christian place? I just couldn't do it because I think I felt like, well, for one thing, nobody, as I said, nobody was listening to me. I didn't feel like I was getting any kind of audience anywhere. And the more I questioned it, the more I realized that, like I say, I, I jettisoned so many pieces of my former fundamentalist self that even in the progressive stage, there was nothing left after four, five, six years. I learned a lot of stuff along the way. And I, I love guys like Richard Rohr and, you know, like I said, Donald Miller, Brian McLaren. I value them tremendously because I can see now they helped me get out of the fundamentalist rut. And that was a hugely important step in the journey. I needed to go through that step. I had to, and I couldn't have gotten to where I am now without going through that step even though I, I didn't stay there for, for more than about five or six years, it's such an, it was such an important part of the journey for me that I don't think they were trying to talk me out of my faith, but it helped me get there in the end. So you've invested so much of your life in the Christian story. Of course you're going to defend it. Of course you're going to get to that point of going, I, I, this has been a foundational piece in my life. How do I actually go forward without this there? That's going to make you angry. You talked about that. It's going to make you pissed off. Hmm. What are the some of the things you did though through that angry phase of going? This is I'm, I'm my own worst enemy now. This anger is going to eat me up. I've got to turn this around, and I've actually got to use some of this to reshape and recast my life. What's some of that stuff that you've done? Because a lot of our listeners are in that place where they have either gone through enormous upheaval or they're sitting on the edge of upheaval, or they're, they're incredibly damaged from what happened. What's some of your tips and tricks around that? Well, tips and tricks, I would say, yeah, as, as I said before, it's not a good idea to stay in that anger and rage and resentment. You need to go through that. Absolutely, I did. And that's where I saw I was, but I was getting stuck in a rut and it was unhealthy. You know, and yeah, absolutely, you have to validate people's abuses that they've suffered and the hurts that they've, you know, experienced at the hands of churches and other Christians and maybe even God in that sense. You know, they've been abused, they've been sexually abused. I mean, there's horrific stories around. We've heard, you know, so many. There was just one today that came out about the Foursquare denomination, a Bible college in Virginia. Another story off the back of the Southern Baptist. I mean, is an endless thing. You, you talk about the Catholic, you know, priest and everything else, shocking stuff. And yeah, people are, they're absolutely pissed off and rightly so, you know, but it's not a good idea, I think, to stay in that place. So what you, what I did, I, I started to educate myself and the, the turning point for me was studying cult psychology, because when I saw that I had been raised in essentially a cultic environment with many of the tactics that typical cults used, then I could start to name the actual things that had happened to me, the tactics that had been used on me, 
that right there disempowered them because I could say, I, I see not only what I, what they did to me, but how it affected me psychologically and, and emotionally and, and, and other ways. And that's what I began to work on. That's what helped me start to get out of the anger phase because I didn't really take it personally. It's what happens to people in cults. You know, they're not targeted necessarily as the individual person. These are tactics that they just use on everybody. So you can't really take it personally on that level. We just get caught up in the machinery of evangelicalism or fundamentalism or whatever the cultic group that we might have been in. I had a similar experience to you, Clint, in that the whole cult thing, um, because I was in a cult, you know, it wasn't cultic, it was it was hardcore cult. And so I was actually using those, those, those cult books and what's the word deprogramming myself but at the same time i was involved in evangelicalism and pentecostalism and i was seeing hold on this is the same you know it's just to a to a lesser degree so i get that but telling us a little bit more then about you know you you came to a place where you eventually walked away you got angry did you did you consider yourself to be an atheist for a time is is that where you sat did you did you plant your flag there or did you never quite get to that point I don't know. Like I said, I've got a lot of questions about the God of the Bible. And if there is a God, I have a huge amount of problems with that God, you know, so I'm still wrestling with questions that I can't seem to get answers for, you know, about God commanding genocide and things like that in the Bible. And I, I know there's answers for that and all that. And I, I, I understand academically what it's all about, but um, I've read, you know, Christopher Hitchens and some of the other classic sort of atheists and all that. And I agree with <laughs> pretty much everything he says, you know, religion does poison everything. That's that's the argument of his book, isn't it? I think actually, yeah, that makes a hell of a lot of sense. It does so much damage, doesn't it? You know, so I'm probably oscillating between agnostic and atheist. I don't pray. I don't read the Bible. I don't acknowledge God on any level. I I, I guess I'm a practical atheist in that sense. I don't think about, oh, my God, I need to pray. I need to read my Bible on this decision that's coming up in my life, you know. So I'm not living with God on any sort of level. Do you, like even though, I mean, we're clouded, obviously, by our past experiences. Before I, I became I became a Christian when I was 17. Um, but before that, I was always brought up in quite a spiritual environment, which was to acknowledge that there was something else. It was definitely not. We never spoke about God, about Jesus. My family didn't go to church. There's nothing around that. But I always had this sense of this, what we see here is not everything that's here. Is that something you acknowledge or you just go, yeah, because I've had that experience, I, I don't think there's anything else? I don't know. My ex-wife, she's very much into spirituality. We both luckily deconstructed at the same time for different reasons but for the last 15 years that we were married she was with me obviously during the whole time i was a pastor and we went through all that she moved we, we moved with our family over here to the uk she was with me for all that we've been divorced for about two years now and we had to recognize that religion did play a big part in that but she is into like you know, spirituality, she'll, she'll talk to mediums and things like that. Whereas for me, I've never had that experience. She believes it and, and it seems to, you know, do something for her, but I've just never kind of gone down that line. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? That we have a lot of Christians that can't separate 
the idea of a spiritual dimension or, or a God from Christianity. And I think we were, we were taught that in a big way. And it's interesting because even the word atheist really ultimately in our society anyway can really mean anti-Christian or at least not a Christian. Um, or even, you know, Judeo-Christian or whatever. And sure, you, you, you will dig with some atheists, you know, as you start to dig into their arguments and they will be against Buddhist cosmology and, and these other, you know, Eastern religions, etc. I totally get it. But I do think that there seems to be, and, and I think it comes a lot from our Christian perspective that, that we used to carry, is that the Christian God is true. Therefore, all arguments against God are against the Christian God and or against you know christian spirituality but but do do you see a way to separate that or do you think no look it's it, it's all it's all one you know in other words if there is a god it has to be the christian god mm. yeah i think that maybe that's why i've steered away from spirituality you know because i don't want to get into questions like that you know it's really problematic isn't it if there is something out there what is it who is it what is is it a deity is it a do we have a deistic God where they created God created everything, wound up the clock and walked away and, and it's all just, you know, the big clockmaker in the sky sort of thing. I don't know, you know, and th those kind of questions, I, I guess I would prefer to say that we're on our own agency as humans. We have to deal with the shit that we do to ourselves. If we're going to cut down the rainforest, we're going to deal with, you know, the lack of oxygen and the impact on the environment. I mean, so I teach on sustainability and construction that's a huge problem. You know, we're, we're burning up the planet uh, to build new buildings and everything else. So we've put ourselves in that mess. We have to get ourselves out of it. You know, praying to God isn't necessarily going to solve that problem. I would, I would say now that's kind of my perspective, you know, so I tend to steer clear of that whole spirituality argument, you know, but I do see Christians, you know, the thing about Christianity is if their message is true, they're going to have to subjugate the whole world. Because all missionaries and everything else, they're going to have to make all the other religions bow the knee. That's what Christopher Hitchens said. The true believer will not rest until the whole world bows the knee. And I think, yeah, that's really the quest of Christian missions is to prove, as you say, that their Christian God is the correct one. All other religions are false. Therefore, you must bow the knee eventually. And that's what Paul says, isn't it? You know, every knee will bow, every eye will, you know, close, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Okay, they're taking that as a dominionist agenda. They will bow the knee, you know, and it's a command. It's an imperative, and that's how they read it. You know, we've gone forward, and you said 2016 for you was very much uh, a tipping point because I, I do think that the whole Trumpism thing, it did usher in definitely a new age of that spiritual warfare where it brought it into the physical realm more than it has been. It certainly has before. You've had your soldiers for Christ, literally, not just metaphorically. But now there's so many literal soldiers for Christ. This is about taking over the world. Like this, this isn't a tame agenda. So it's a, it's a slightly frightening thing. Very frightening. Yeah, especially as the most recent example in the, in the United States, the Christian right has succeeded in overturning Roe versus Wade. And that is all, well, I won't say all, but a, a great majority of the drivers behind that is the Christian nationalist agenda. They're trying to turn America back into a so-called Christian nation. And so for them, overturning abortion is the way to do that or one way to do it. And the next on the chopping block are going to be things like 
LGBTQ rights and things like that. So other progressive gains are going to go because they're a sin against God. And, you know, part of that is, of course, the spiritual warfare, the seven mountains mandate and all that's part and parcel of what guys are doing. Like, you know, Lance Wall now and other people, I don't know if you've heard of him, but, you know, that's their agenda. Yeah, it's nuts. It's to the point where, you know, season seven of The Handmaid's Tale will just be a live cross to America. Yeah, it, it's it really just is. getting it's getting out of control and it, it is a frightening space. And we don't see that in Australia. Like we really don't. We're, we don't claim to be a Christian nation. There certainly is pockets um, and we have the Christian right here, um, but there certainly they don't have that power that uh, even we had a Pentecostal prime minister. I was going to say, yeah, you did have a PM that was affiliated with Hillsongs and other ways, wasn't he? Oh yeah, yeah, he was he was fully into it, and since he's he's come out of the the prime ministerial role, like he's he's definitely you know I think he considered himself a lay preacher even when he was a when he was PM, um, but he was certainly driven by that. But you would never see if you had a Pentecostal prime minister, uh, sorry, a president in the states. I think you would see enormous changes, but we have a political system having the Westminster system. I think that protects us to a certain degree from um, that Christian nationalism taking over Parliament, despite, true, yeah, yeah d- despite the, the efforts. I mean, there was a stacking of evangelical ministers in uh, Scott Morris, now former PM's space. So, yeah, let's, let's not get too far into that because I'm a bit passionate about it. But um, I, I, I guess one thing that we, we do try and do in this podcast is reclaim some of the in the spirit of Christianity, uh, reclaiming some of those really shitty experiences that we've all had, and making sure that we go, you know what, that bit of our life wasn't written off, that bit of our life wasn't all useless. Even though that now we go, what 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 we've held dear to then, we certainly don't hold dear to now. But there's a lot of really good stuff that came out of it. You know, there was there was really good skills that we learned, particularly for those who would get up and do public speaking, our ability to be able to relate to so many different people, all of those things that I think have have really helped us build more successful lives and more integrated lives with normality um, as we've gone. A love of study and reading and finding things out and research, et cetera, is another one for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Lots of great stuff. For you, what are some of the good things that you can go, okay, I'm bringing these forward and I'm actually, what I'm doing is I'm transferring those into a bit of goodness in my life. Yeah, it's a great question. I think you're right because the anger that comes out, it's the same thing with people that leave cults, isn't it? You realize, my God, I've wasted 20, 30, however many years, decades of my life, thousands and thousands of dollars or pounds or whatever you spent in all these things and it's gone now it's wasted and you're very angry and that's why i was one of the reasons why i was so angry i mean i couldn't even get a job with my phd (laughs) when i went to this job and where i'm teaching now it's just a regular college i had to do level two maths and english and i said i've got a phd what what i you're telling me i have to do a level two english exam i mean it's insane and the, yeah, it didn't count for anything. Not even that. I couldn't even get out of level two English. But as you say, the rebuilding part comes when you start to realize what positives you can take away. So for me, 
I, I played the drums. So I play the drums in a, a secular, you know, covers rock and blues band. I love playing drums. I learned how to play the drums to play in church worship and church Christian metal bands when I was in the States. Like you said, uh, Troy, I, my research skills as an academic, I put them to use for writing books and for my podcast, you know, the public speaking. I was a preacher. I was a pastor for years. I was a teacher for years. All those things stood me in good stead. Now, in my current employment, what I do now, I deal with military veterans, a lot of whom have PTSD. And my pastoral skills, I, I, it's not religious at all, but the the part of the job that I really enjoy is helping these men and women that have come out of horrific combat-related things where they have PTSD is the mental health and well-being support. You know, so all of those skills I learned in my time in Christianity that I've taken away and said, yeah, I mean, I can claim those back, as you say, Brian. I can reclaim them and put them to good use now. Hey, now, I just want to draw everyone's attention to the fact that you have a podcast. Clint, which is called the Mind Shift Podcast. You've got a fairly extensive back catalog as well. But what's exciting is that this, while this conversation is coming to an end, we are going to jump over into your podcast now. And so your podcast is going to be available today as well, or part two of, of this chat on your podcast. So we just want to invite everyone to click on the link in the show notes, which is going to take you directly to Clint's podcast. And again, we said before, Brian and I have spent a lot of time listening to your stuff, Clint, and it's it's wonderful. So we want to recommend your podcast, but we want to invite everybody over to the second half of this chat, where instead of us driving, it's going to be Clint driving. And uh, we're going to continue on with this chat. Because I am so looking forward to that. I've, I'm, I'm over here rubbing my hands. I've got so many questions for you now. It's going to be my turn. So yes, definitely drop over to get the part two on my show too. That'd be great. Yeah, so we'll do a bit of a mind shift and uh, head over to Clint's podcast. Anything you want to say, Brian, before we sign off? No, I just see what you did there. That was, yeah, it was good, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah, I see what it did. Very clever. I look, it, it wasn't. It's going to be good. See you there soon, people. Looking forward to the chat.